Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you and welcome here this evening to the Australian National University. Um, my name is uh, Ian Young and I have the very great honour to be Vice-Chancellor of the ANU. Uh, firstly, let me begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and paying our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Tonight is a very special occasion as we have no less than two Nobel laureates and two leading theoretical physicists on a panel to discuss when and why does science matter. It may seem like an obvious question to ask, when does science matter? Think of our daily lives. What could we do today in a modern society without science? It shapes so many things that we do. But what constitutes good science and how do we communicate the benefits of science and should scientists become politicians? Just some of the questions that will be discussed tonight. We are very lucky that we will be joined by our own Professor Brian Schmidt, who will be leading the conversation and it gives me great pleasure to introduce him and the rest of the panel. Brian is a distinguished professor, Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow and astrophysicist at the ANU Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. He was jointly awarded the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of the accelerating universe. Brian is currently leading the SkyMapper Telescope Project and the associated Southern Sky Survey. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Brian Schmidt. Professor Stephen Chu is the 1997 joint winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on cooling and the trapping of atoms using laser light. In December 2008, then US President-elect Barack Obama nominated Professor Chu as Energy Secretary. He was unanimously confirmed in January 2009 and held the position until April of 2013. Professor Chu's appointment to this position was seen as a signal that President Obama was serious about implementing renewable energy technology to reduce carbon emissions. Professor Chu will also be speaking at the National Press Club this Wednesday on managing energy, economic growth and environmental risks. Tickets are still available from the National Press Club. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Stephen Chu. Professor Lisa Randall studies theoretical particle physics and cosmology at Harvard University. Her research connects theoretical insights to puzzles in our current understanding of the properties and interactions of matter. Professor Randall's research also explores ways to experimentally test and verify ideas. 
Her current research focuses in large part on the Large Hadron Collider and dark matter searches and models. She was on the list of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2007 and was one of 40 people featured in Rolling Stone, 40th anniversary issue that same year. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Professor Lisa Randolph. Professor Lawrence Krauss is an internationally known theoretical physicist with wide research interests, including the interface between elementary particle physics and cosmology. He is based at Arizona State University and also holds a part-time professorship here at ANU. Professor Krauss is the author of many acclaimed popular books, including The Fifth Essence, The Search for Dark Matter in the Universe, Fear of Physics, The Physics of Star Trek, and a universe from nothing. Why there is something rather than nothing. He is one of the few prominent scientists today to have actively crossed the chasm between science and popular culture. And we are very pleased to have him here this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, with that, can I hand over Professor Brian Schmidt. Brian. Could you have them turn down the lights, please? Okay. Um, thank you. We're going to, if we could have the lights, house lights turned down just a little bit so we, uh, we can't quite spotlight. see what's going on. We're staring into a, I also am a black have a hole of darkness right now. <laughs> I'm going to have a migraine at the end of the evening if you don't turn that yeah. down. So, uh, welcome everyone. It's oh, a great pleasure better. to be here. Uh, for me, this is an interesting and uh, new type of event. I feel intellectually challenged. I also feel... As well you should. Yeah, well... <laughs> I, I also feel like a bit of a wallflower amongst this group of three people, which is very unusual <laughs> for the three, uh, for people who know me well. So we're going to go through and have a conversation, and we're not going to just stick with the obvious stuff. I really want to go in and look at some of the edges of why science matters and how it works in detail. We have... Uh, three of really the world's most prominent physicists uh, here. Uh, you're going to have a lot of North American accent uh, tonight. Uh, you have a lot of Harvard graduates, even if one of us is only in the honorary sense, but we won't hold that against you. Uh, but uh, you also have a lot of people with a lot of experience from around the world uh, to think about how science really does matter. We're also going to give you the opportunity to ask questions if you're not technologically challenged. How are you going to do this? You're going to use Twitter. This means you will be short and succinct. And you will use the hashtag ANU. Okay? If you are technologically challenged, find someone under the age of 50 in your row and they'll help you out. <laughs> Great. Uh, now, I will note that uh, one of our panel members is technologically challenged, which is, uh, which is Steve Chu. And can I have, guys, can I have this light uh, come down just a little bit? Um, these right up here. I know it's a little challenging in the theatrical settings. That's better. Thank you. Is that better? Is that okay? Great. Thank you. So uh, we're going to uh, start off by finding out a little bit about each of our audience members. We all know that these are great theoretical physicists. Uh, and uh, experimental physicists, yeah. but uh, <laughs> the and lesser breed. Yeah. Uh, but I think we want to find out a little bit about 
why they are uh, considered to be these esteemed physicists. So Lawrence, <laughs> we know you've written books. The physics of Star Trek is where I first started with you, I think, a long time ago. The universe of nothing. You've made movies, for example, The Unbelievers was filmed partially in this room in this we're room, in yeah. tonight. Uh, but you are really there at the uh, forefront of the theory of physics, which we call astroparticle physics, the junction between particle physics and astrophysics. So tell me what you see as being your <laughs> most important work in science, and why does it matter? Well, I'm very proud of the fact that nothing I do has any practical significance whatsoever. <laughs> and um, I'm, I really mean that. I think it's, uh, it's profoundly important that science is a cultural activity as much as a... We tend to praise science too much for its technological impact. And of course, it's responsible for the technology of everything that makes this room possible, including the, the tweets you're going to get. But, uh, but, but what really makes science, in my mind, a, such a central part of the human condition is its cultural it, it, the, the impact, the ideas of science, and, and that make us really have new perspectives of our place in the universe. So anyway, my, I, I don't try to think about my own significance as much as I can, but um, I think one of the things I'm very proud of is predicting what you discovered. <laughs> Yes, and you uh, predict what I discovered in 1995, and I and no one else in the world believed him. I didn't believe it either, yeah, actually, okay. but, uh, <laughs> but, but it, it seems is like one of a good his most famous papers. And, uh, and, and also, I think probably the early work on, on, on what is now an important area, which is the detection of dark matter, I think is, is uh, uh, something I'm very proud of many, many years ago, uh, thinking about ways, working with experimentalists, which I've always enjoyed doing, to try and think of ways. I've tried in my own research to always couple to things that are observable. It's always, it's sort of been a property of, of my research since, since I graduated. Uh, 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 I, uh, when I was a, a student, my a colleague, a Harvard colleague, Shelley Glashow, said, there's physics and there's formalism, and you should know the difference. And, and um, anyway, that and probably predicting maybe gravitational waves from inflation early, early on, which I think is an area that may become important. So those are three I'm, I'm sort of happy with. Okay. Lisa, you also have written two uh, bestsellers uh, that have been noted by uh, the uh, New York Times, and those have been read by lots and lots of people, but you are most well-known because you have two of the most highly cited papers of physics in my lifetime. They have the catchy titles of Large Mass Hierarchy from a Small Extra Dimension and an Alternative to Compactification. They're both written by, uh, co-written with uh, Raman Sundram, who I say, because I want to get this out of the way, uh, was an Australian undergraduate and was supervised by Lawrence. Lawrence was going to tell us that at some point, yeah. so <laughs> I just wanted to get it out of the way. So uh, tell us about these papers and why they matter. You know, I, I, I'm, I'll have a little preamble like Lawrence did just to say that um, I also... I work on theoretical physics, and a lot of the time, theoretical physics is given this idea that it's just almost mystical, and that, and really the kinds of things I work on are trying to connect these theoretical ideas with things you can observe, and also to solve puzzles about what we don't understand about our universe. That is to say, we know things are made up of more elementary components, and we know a lot about those components. It's called the standard model of particle physics. This Higgs, Higgs boson discovery was sort of a completion of the capstone of that standard model in some sense. But there are other things we don't understand. We don't understand why particle masses are what they are. We don't even understand approximately why they are what they are. 
And so try, in trying to understand those questions, because they're so difficult to solve, it turns out, it turns out that obvious answers just don't work. We were led further and further afield. And so we ended up trying to solve it um, thinking about an extra dimension of space. That is to say, really a dimension of space beyond the three that we experience, forward, backward, left, right, up, down, a, a genuinely new dimension of space that we don't observe. And in fact, we weren't even directly trying to do that at first. We were trying to actually fix up a theory called supersymmetry that actually makes some incorrect predictions. But in the process of doing that, we realized that we actually had a solution in and of itself having to do with why gravity is so much weaker than the other forces. And it really was a, a, an amazing experience because we accidentally discovered this, but then it turns out to work. But then the process of examining that solution, we also realized that you, and this was something that people that do pure theory hadn't been aware of, people who did general relativity, Stephen Hawking came and talked about this, people who did string theory, that you can actually have an infinite extra dimension of space and not know about it. People had known that you could have small extra dimensions of space that we don't observe. And the reason is kind of the reason that's almost obvious. If it's so small, you don't see it. But we actually found that because of the effect of gravity itself, that space-time could be so warped that you actually would not be aware of a fourth dimension of space, even if it existed in the scenario that we designed. That, well, not that we designed, that we discovered in some sense. So, I mean, that is the work that I'm best known for. But also, I've also really worked on things about just really understanding the standard model better, understanding experiments that also were finding these little niches that people hadn't observed that actually gave great insights into just the standard model also. Great. Stephen. So, um, from my perspective, you're arguably one of the most versatile physicists of modern times. You've worked across a whole vast range of subjects, including energy, uh, polymer science, biophysics, but it was for your work in cooling and trapping electrons uh, with laser light that you received the Nobel Prize. Uh, tell us about this work and why it mattered enough to win a Nobel Prize. Well, if you don't mind, I have to correct you. Okay. It's cooling and trapping atoms. Oh, sorry, um, atoms. I apologize. <laughs> I meant, yes. Uh, and then I'm wondering why you thought I was technologically challenged, but never mind. <laughs> 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 um, but Because um, you didn't answer his email in time. <laughs> he doesn't have a Twitter account. He doesn't have a Twitter account. It's true. Okay, I didn't it. answer his email because my, uh, the people who invited me have kept me busy uh, round the clock today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's all their fault. <laughs> uh, but um, and let me also say, before I answer your question, um, although I, I'm definitely not a theoretical physicist, uh, although part of the work I did was cited in the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Uh, so, and because it, Claude Contunigi and I discovered simultaneously the correct explanation for how laser cooling works, and, and that was as part of the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not a theorist in the sense I would call a theorist. I was a quantum mechanic in the sense that we had the theory, we had a puzzle of how to use the existing theory to, to solve this unexpected result. And so I could, you know, turn the theoretical crank. Um, but that's not what I call real theory. I think uh, these guys do real theory. <laughs> uh, it counts. Uh, but in, in any case, um, Laser cooling and trapping got a Nobel Prize because of a couple of things. It led to an opening of a new technology, a new method that opened up a couple of areas. It enabled you to cool atoms 
down through very, very low temperatures that first led to another Nobel Prize, both condensation. It led to, with atoms very, very cold, you could do many body experiments that was quite unexpected, uh, that you can test concepts in condensed matter physics very cleanly that you could never touch with other systems. It led to, this part I knew it, and helped contribute to, it led to better atomic clocks. And within seven years from the first time we took cold atoms, threw them up, and said this could be a better atomic clock, it became the time standard of the world. And so that's a very fast technology transfer given the time standards people, they usually wait 15 years or 20 years to do something. And it led to better navigation, it led to better uh, inertial sensing, it led to better measurements of, of uh, gravity, exquisitely sensitive so-called interferometer experiments where you can split an atom, the waves will interfere, you come back. It's now the most precise way of measuring gravity. Why would you want to measure it precisely? Well, it turns out if you put them up in satellites, you can actually measure changes in glaciers across the entire world because they're in polar orbit. You can measure changes in water tables from satellites measuring gravity. And so it led to lots of things. I didn't see 90% of it until after we trapped and cooled atoms. And then all of a sudden everything opened up because Richard's so focused, you know, can we do this? Mm -hmm. and, and within a year or two after it was, oh, voila. Right, and it created a real revolution of right. a whole vast number of things we can do. And we're still learning what we can do with right. this. I mean, that's one of the cool things is... Steve, I gotta ask, can I, is it okay if I ask him a question? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, I found as a theorist, but maybe as an experimentalist, that there are many things I could have written about before experimentalists did it, but you don't think seriously about it till it's been done. It's like, oh yeah, I could have thought of that, but, but when it's been done, suddenly you take things more seriously. And I was just wondering if that, you know, when you were talking about those ant the, the, the applications, whether that was the case. If, until you did it, you really didn't realize all, how useful it could be. Yeah, I knew about atomic clocks. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about atom interferometers. I wasn't thinking about inertial sensing. I wasn't thinking about, it's still debated, whether it's a, a real test of general relativity. But uh, I didn't think of testing condensed matter physics in a totally different way, many body physics. None of us knew about that, thought about that. Uh, but it's exactly what happened after it happened, and it became easy. Yeah. Within a couple of years, you, it became experimental undergraduate laboratory demonstrations. And it was that ease. Well, that was the surprising result, wasn't it? That it, sh that it should be as stable as it was once you dropped these atoms. I don't think anyone expected it to be as robust no, as this No, in fact, uh, yeah, we did this magneto-optic trap, and, um, and, um, and it, it, it took, a, it took two weeks. Mm -hmm. Optical molasses took 10 months yeah. from before we even had a, um, a vacuum chamber. It could have been done five, 10 years ago. Uh, and everything starts sort of falling in place and all of a sudden, and then I, I remember our astronaut had been dreaming about this for a decade. I come in my lab and say, look at that, there's this little ball atom just sitting there in the vacuum chamber. I said, did you ever think that would happen? And he was looking at me and said, <laughs> so, I guess that brings up a fundamental question. Um, so, Lisa, what constitutes good science, excellent science? You know, we always talk about it, and 
you know, the three of you uh, are well-known, but why are you well-known? What, what did you do that constitutes good science? Why, why are these people, uh, why should they believe we know what we're doing about choosing who should be famous and who's not? I, first of all, I really like the fact that I get to be the arbiter of good science. <laughs> yeah, is, is I want to hear what you have good. to say. Be, be good to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's a really valid question, and it's not always something that's immediately obvious. Yeah. Um, you know, we have this very nice picture of science as you predict something, then someone measures it, and it's tested, and you figure out which theories are right. But of course, as was just pointed out, some of these theories take a long time before we know the answer. So what is it that's good science? Well, first of all, of course, it has to be internally consistent and consistent with everything that's done before. It doesn't always have to be answering big questions, but generally it has implications for the big questions. So it puts you at least a notch forward. So it's some direction that we think will eventually give, get us somewhere. So I think sort of the questions you ask are very important. Is it something that is, will have, could possibly have wide implications or at least set a direction? But of course, also there's the very basic criterion that it's true, that it's correct, that it's consistent. We like to have science that can be testable. It doesn't mean it has to be testable tomorrow. And sometimes we don't even know that things can be tested. I mean, one of the reasons that I think it's so important these days to do theory is that experiments and measurements and observations are so expensive. They require so much investment. And we really want to know what are all the possible implications. So one of the aspects of good science today, especially, is being able to pinpoint, are there things that should be looked for that we're missing? I mean, I think everyone has this old-fashioned notion of a telescope where you point at one thing and that's what you see and you sort of know in advance. I mean, now we have these big data collections, both for astrophysics and for particle physics, and we want to know everything that we can do with that data. So part of, part of good science, at least from a theoretical perspective, is figuring out what that can be. Of course, from the experimental perspective, it's doing things that could have broad interest. You're looking for one thing. You might be looking for measuring the cosmological constant more accurately, but in the process, you're going to learn a lot of astrophysics, too. I mean, right now we're working on a dark matter project that is a way of test using all the data that people are collect collecting about the position and velocities of stars and saying what can that imply about our knowledge of the galactic plane and dark matter there. So I think it's a combination of things. And how do we decide it? Well, it's partially peer decided, but peers don't always get it right. A lot of the time there's fads, people jump on something. It's really only over time that the really good ideas emerge, we hope. You know, to jump on that, we were both, Lisa and I have uh, overlapped at Harvard for a while, and, and, um, and Steve Weinberg is another Nobel Prize winner, but uh, that paper that he wrote, which won the Nobel Prize, had about three citations for the first eight years or ten years. And people didn't realize it was, gonna, it, was, it was gonna be useful. And I think one of the qualities of good science is, is, is often that it surprises the people doing it. That, uh, the papers, some of the papers I've written that, that had an impact I was surprised because I realized I didn't really understand them when I wrote them. And I think that the quality of good science is that other people can use it. What, what Steve was talking about is that his, his work quickly became useful. So the quality of good science is that other scientists find it useful. It allows them to do what they're doing better or change their directions, the work you did. Obviously, once, once the people recognized the universe was accelerating, it changed all the questions that other people asked about their own work. So on it's an impact hand, on it. There were only three citations. It didn't do that for a long time. Well, we, yeah, it, 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 it yeah. may not. And in fact, 
the, the other thing, we don't, people tend to want to support science because it's, it's useful, but we don't know what's going to be useful. And, and, and as often said, our current standard of living comes from curiosity-driven research a generation earlier. People didn't, weren't trying to solve energy problems or create a better mode for computers when they're developing the transistor. It, 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 so there, it's really important that, that people do curiosity-driven research, and then it may take a generation before it changes the world. So, Stephen, uh, we've heard I, from two theorists, yeah. yes. So, yes. so let, me add, let me yeah. start by adding to what Lawrence said. Um, I was um, a graduate student in Berkeley from 1970 to uh, Stephen Weinberg's paper came out in the mid-late 60s. 67, yes. Yeah. 67. And uh, my thesis advisor was an expert on weak interactions, yeah. and we were talking about this, and he would say, nah, it's just speculation. Uh, then, uh, I think it was Ben Lee who just mm -hmm. proved it, it, that theory could cure a theoretical ill. It was a, something, there was a self-consistency. We knew it was not, the existing theory was not self-consistent. All the physicists knew this. And so we're groping around since the days of Fermi, who first introduced that weak interaction theory. And Weinberg thought it might cure this mathematical problem, but he didn't know how to fix it. And so it was a speculation. Then someone else, another theoretical physicist, you're two, there's Gerrit Tuov. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then they said, oh my gosh, another person said he was right. He had a hunch he was right. He wasn't able to prove it. Someone else was able to prove it. And at that point, the experimentalist said, aha, now we're gonna take it seriously. Because quite candidly, theorists like to make predictions they actually make predictions that contradict other predictions. They don't <laughs> care. It's like, but wait, it's but like fortune tellers. But also, that's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're and it's their say, duty not to. But, right. but it, exactly. I mean, it's your job to figure out which right. one is right. It's not our job. No, but we, we have to. You know, no, their ideas. Know. It's shooting out ideas, and you know, and, and they're uh, playing uh, old bets. <laughs> it's some <laughs> and, and experimentalists love. I mean, I've yeah. produced several papers. Experimentalists love to prove theorists wrong, so we right. throw the bones out all the time just because we know so you're going to be and, able to do it. Believe me, yes, we <laughs> do love to prove them wrong. And what's, what's really nice about theory is most of them will be wrong no matter what because they're just they're trying to cover Actually, all bets. Actually, no one likes to them wrong because then they don't get any further <laughs> citations. But anyway, so. Yeah, the disconnect, I think, comes from that to prove them wrong sometimes takes three to five years of your life, so you have to choose the bets you're going to take uh, to try to... To, you know, to it's a much bigger investment for an experimentalist yeah, in yeah. general. Nowadays, it didn't used to be. I mean, there were days when you could do it in a weekend. But now, I mean, you know, they're really working the weekend directions. I mean, there were it, weekend experiments. It, it could, in not three or four years, it could be 20 years. Yeah, now it's an investment <laughs> of, for yeah, the Large Hadron it Collider. A, it's, a, yeah. it's a lifetime. But that was one of the great things about your measurement, right. was that Brian's measurement, too. Oh. Was, sorry, your measurement was great, too. But <laughs> Brian, <laughs> Brian, so, so actually, we, we, we did uh, help confirm Weinberg's law. Yeah, yeah, you did. No, yeah. no, it w that's true. But, but what you were measuring, you were measuring the, the acceleration of the expansion. It was going to be an interesting result no matter what. If you were measuring that it did accelerate, that it didn't accelerate, that it decelerated, anything would have been interesting. So that's a great example where people could predict it, but no matter what it was, it was going to be an interesting result. Yeah, and technology was sort of launched at that time where we could do the experiment, right. and uh, and so it was, it was a that, good time that's a key thing is that you you know that it's technology. I mean, you're driven by what technologies are available and pushing new ones, and 
And so, you know, when, uh, when experimentalists ask me what to do, I, you know, take the technology you have and push it as far as you can and be, you might be surprised. I mean, and, the, the yeah. surprises are what important. And technology comes in very strange ways. For example, watch this technology. Now, I will never mistake whether Lisa's talking to me or Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call innovation in this country. <laughs> so, one of the things that I'm <laughs> one of the things that I'm struck by uh, is that uh, all three of you have written books. <laughs> I have not written a book. So, for example, no, no. Uh, both uh, uh, Lawrence and Lisa have these, you know, uh, you know, popularized books on uh, quite complex areas of physics. Uh, Stephen, your books, maybe not the page turners of the other ones, the uh, <laughs> graduate text on laser spectroscopy and atomic fountain microwave clock, but I think the real good one for yours was solar powering your community, a guide for local governments. Uh, that was from your cat of F. Scott, one of your authors. He doesn't even know he wrote this, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, the question I want to ask is, so we have this excellent science, we need to tell people about it. How does outreach fit into all of this? I mean, you guys all spend a lot of time on outreach. One would say being the uh, Secretary of the Department of Energy maybe was an outreach activity of four years long of a particular type. But uh, Lawrence, why do you spend so much time doing outreach? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, there's an obligation, I think, for the community. We are supported by the public. And I think we have an obligation, therefore, to explain what, what we're do, why, what the money that they're spending and what it's on. I mean, some of it is not altruistic. I, I, the particle physics community learned the hard way at the time of the superconducting supercollider in the United States that that was, there were many reasons that didn't pass. There were some quite political ones. But one of the reasons was that the particle physics community, I think, had been living with the largesse of the Cold War and, and the uh, Manhattan Project, and kind of had, uh, didn't really take seriously the notion of explaining why you should spend what seemed like a lot of money at the time, $5 billion. Now, that was the air conditioning bill in Iraq in a week, so it's clearly, uh, uh, you know, it would have clearly been more useful to spend on the Large Hadron Collider. But, um, the, uh, but we, I think, so I, I think that it was a real jolt for the physics community that big science, which, and essentially much of science is becoming big science, requires more and more money, and, and we really have an obligation. We, if we want, expect Congress and the public to support it, we have to explain why we're doing it. But that's just, that's a self-interest issue. The more important thing is that th these, as I said, these ideas are, to me, the most exciting ideas that humans have ever come up with. And it's such a shame in the 21st century not to share them broadly. I, and it, we have this culture, it didn't always, wasn't always that way, way before you were young. Um, there was, you know, in the, turn, in, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, you couldn't be educated without some sort of cocktail party knowledge of science. But now, it, it's the opposite. It, it, I taught at Yale for a long time, and, you know, and it was the opposite, where people say, you know, uh, that's science stuff. I, I, I don't understand it, therefore I'm cultured. And, and, uh, and, and as a writer, you, you, I tried not to read reviews, but... but uh, in the New Yorker, pick some magazine that's supposed to be intellectual. You'd have some reviewer review some John Kenneth Galbraith book or some economics book, and it'd be 10 pages long, and whether they understood or not. But a really good review of a science book is, it boggled my mind. And so, 
you can't imagine them successfully doing that but anything else, but people are allowed to turn their minds off. When these ideas are comprehensible, if they're willing to do a little work, and we're doing work, well, you know, do a little work to explain it, and it's part of what makes being human so, so interesting, and so I kind of feel an obligation, and I feel fortunate, I mean, because I do have a soapbox now in some sense, and having had some success at this, that, that, that I have the opportunity to continue to, to provide that, and to me, that's a great privilege. So Lisa, you also went through and spent all the effort of writing a book, which is a huge investment of your time. You did this in 2005, well after you had had these huge papers that ensured you were going to be tenured for life. Why did you spend the time in 2005? Um, first of all, I, I was already tenured before I wrote those papers. <laughs> I did other work too. Um, well, you um, lose tenure, but you would never have lost tenure at this point. Um, so. so it's interesting because I, I, along with Lauren, I do think it's important that some people help explain what we're doing to the public because it is too challenging. I mean, basically, at the time that people wrote about my work, they they really didn't understand it. Even those who, people who were very well-meaning, I realized that the st the state of physics today it really is so advanced that you can't really understand it unless someone makes the effort to actually explain it to you. And um, whether or not this is true, I mean, I. I didn't find most of the books were the style that I would have read, and, um, and I became a scientist. And so I thought, that's a bad thing. If there are books that, it, so I, I, but I thought it's really easy to criticize. And, and so um, being who I am, I was like, okay, I wonder if you could do better. So I actually thought it was important to try to do something better. Um, but also, I think there are certain styles that go into the way people explain things. And I think that there's such a, a cultural divide that there even becomes a certain style for even science writing books. And I thought it was interesting to try to integrate different elements of culture into it, to think about it as a more continuous thing that everyone could be interested in. And my books are really trying to give the full story. I'm not cheating at all, so people have to be interested. But I think people who are interested should be entitled to have some place they can go to understand it. But frankly, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't find that I also enjoyed writing, and I also found it a, a very distinct type of creative challenge. How do you put all these complex ideas into a story that you can read from beginning to end? That is not an easy thing to do. And sort of addressing that challenge was actually, I mean, sometimes very frustrating, sometimes a lot of work, but sometimes also very gratifying in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I think, I would like to be a poll, but I think we talk, we're talking about, you know, why science is important, but the, but the heart is, and the reason we write or the reason we do science is because we enjoy it. I don't think any of us would do it if it wasn't just the, the pleasure we get from those activities. And that's not to say we enjoy every minute of no, it. No, exactly not. Yeah. But, but there's another it. thing about no. that, it, and I think um, I, I know it for me, and, and I suspect it deeply, once you understand something, it, beginning when I was an undergraduate, mm -hmm. I would grab someone, some slob, and, and, and say, guess what I've figured <laughs> out, guess what I understand, and they would have to sit and listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so some of the things that are happening in science, not only in my own field, but in other things, is just so cool that you just want to say, hey, this is just really it's cool. It's interesting, though, because I actually come at it from a different direction. I really, I think people don't want to know about it. It's their loss. But people who want to know, 
should have the opportunity. So if people are interested, I'm happy to explain it. But you know, but the, your point, yeah. I mean, in, in actually yeah. in the movie, Richard Dawkins says, Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell everyone. Right. I'm in love with science. Right. And I want to tell right. everyone. And right. so, so the, some of those poor individuals had to sit and quietly listen, including yeah. one or two cabinet members trapped with me on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I just figured out how to, how to we're, I was writing with a colleague a paper on an experiment we did that might have a, a bearing on general relativity, and I just figured out an elegant way to derive these things, and I was carrying around this big tome uh, uh, on general relativity, and we're in a, a jet plane, and we're coming to the Secretary of Agriculture, a governor from Iowa, and, and I said, Tom, I figured it out. He kind of looked at me and, and said, what did you figure out? I said, I figured out how to cast the general relativity into this experiment. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> and he decided to start talking to you about corn or something in response. No, actually. he was just blinking. I'm sure he was thinking, dear God, we'll make the plane land. But, <laughs> but, but no, actually, I, I think he might have been interested. I, who knows? But, <laughs> but, but, um, but, but, so uh, it, it is the fact that if you're genuinely excited about you, now I was thinking of actually going and writing, except there's too many cool things that I want to do in the lab, and so I do also love to write, but I'm, I'm so I'm torn. But, but it is something, but it's also something about not only is it really cool and you want to communicate to other people who are non-scientists. Now, you were going to ask me, I'm sure, you know, why, why is the why well, do you you've go seen the politics? inside of government. Yes. So the other side of government. What? You've seen the inside. Ah, inside. The rest of us only see it from the outside. Yes. Although in this room, that's not guaranteed. Uh, <laughs> so, is it important from a government's perspective to have this outreach done? Is it an important part as how government sees science? Well, let me just say it's very important that government seek the best scientific advice. Many of the decisions that are crucial, critical to countries, uh, require uh, good scientific advice. Um, and for that reason, if good scientists have the opportunity to serve in the government, uh, they should consider it, but they have to have certain qualities. Uh, 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 they can't have a fragile ego. They have to understand. I have a theory. I learned a few things in government Number one, there's what I call the theory of mud. What's the theory of mud? M-U-D, mud. Oh, mud, okay. And the theory of mud is the following. If they throw mud on you, and they know it's not gonna stick because it's simply not true, it doesn't matter. If they throw it fast enough, you're still covered in mud. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to realize that it happens. And it could take years, uh, but and you say, okay, so you have to recognize that some of these things do happen. But you can quietly behind the scenes do a lot. Yeah. And it's quietly behind the scenes uh, doing a lot. And, and um, so it's very important that the government have good scientific advice. It's very important that actually governments have significant, serious practicing scientists in government, in the highest levels of government. Uh, you can't form committees to give you advice sometimes. Uh, even well-meaning, very intelligent people, if they say, well, if I have a set of advisors, that's enough. And except 
they may not be able to ask the right questions of the advisors. And as scientists, we know that if you're talking and you start asking the right questions and you scratch below the surface, you can actually get very quickly to what might be really happening, what is not happening. So actually, can I ask a question? So our, you gov our ask government. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, that's right. I get to decide what good science is. Um, so clearly, not everyone in our government listens when you give scientific advice. And when they don't listen, are they? I, I'm just curious. Do they genuinely not understand, or do they, or do they, blatantly not understand and decide okay. to ignore it? I think it it it's various forms. Um, I think. Um, Sometimes they genuinely don't understand, which means I, I, you try it, and, and there is a skill in trying to simplify, but, not, but still tell the absolute truth, as Einstein said, right? right? That's what we both, yeah. You know, you, you simplify, yeah. simplify, and simplify yeah. until you you, it's not the truth. Yeah. And, and so you just do that, and you different, do it in different language, uh, but make sure the analogies are, are sound, correct, and, and that your fellow scientists would never gag on it. Uh, <laughs> and so, 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 and some people do that. Other people are in particular situations. I, I think now in the United States, there were, there are a number of people where I would call as closet believers in climate change. Mm -hmm. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> Wished we had some more of those here. Oh no, no, no. You may probably have so a number here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, meaning that uh, that y you actually are not as skeptical as you might be, or you might believe that it's happening, uh, there's a reasonable probability humans had something to do with it, significant part, and there are big risks. But there are other reasons why you prefer not to take that public view. Yep. And so... And how do they, what do they what, actually say, those people? Are they actually saying, even though they know that's not really what's going on, that they don't believe it, or do they somehow... Some of them don't will say publicly they don't, but others try to, try to be muted. Uh, it, 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 it varies. Um, and uh, so, you know, during, in the run-up to this last election in the United States, you know what the official mantra of, of uh, the Republican Party was? Uh, well, I'm not a scientist, so I yeah. can't really say anything about climate change. Watch the Stephen Colbert think, okay. report on that on, online. Uh, for several months before the election, that was everybody all of a sudden started saying that. After the election, they did very well. They said, no, that's just baloney, baloney. I want to ask in an Australian yeah. context, so, or, well, I don't want to interrupt you in another question. Yeah. I was just going to say, an addendum to that is once I was asked to be on CNN to talk about climate change because they wanted someone unbiased. And I, I said, you know, actually, scientists who have studied the issue, they're not biased. <laughs> yeah. They actually know something. And it's, you should put one of them on. But <laughs> it, it, when you talk about science and government and, and, and having, you know, government officials who are actually involved with it, would you therefore say, if you were, say, the Australian government, that it wouldn't be a good thing to say, get rid of the minister whose portfolio is science? That would be a bad thing. Ask the question again. I yeah. was fuzzy now. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, I just, that was rhetorical. No, but, no. but uh, I mean, th that's what sort of happened in this current uh, government. Well, look, I, uh, you know, this is, Australia's going to have to deal with Australians uh, in, in terms of that. <laughs> it's, no. the, it's actually, in the end, uh, it's a democratic society. And, you know, and I, well, it, and that's the important issue. It re relates to what you two were saying in, in terms of what government officials say. I'm sometimes on a news program here called Q&A, and there was, I was on with a well-known politician who was a, you know, a climate change denier, 
And, um, and we talked about it. And after the program, I said, look, you know, I'd love to come to your office and, and just show you some data. And he said, I'm not interested because I have a constituency. Mm -hmm. And my constituency wants me to present it this way, and I don't really care. I did meet some people in Congress who were against and said, I don't believe it. And I said, you're welcome to come, you know, Congressman. And he actually did come to my office. So, and so we did said. Did he change that, his mind? Uh, it was interesting because uh, the uh, short answer to your question is I don't know, but it was interesting because he would say, okay, this is what we know and this is what we don't know. I'm very, very clear about what we don't know, wh what mm -hmm. we know, and, and what we suspect. And then he said, well, what about sunspots? Maybe this is caused by sunspots. And I said, funny you should ask. Uh, it's not funny you should ask. Mm -hmm. uh, the, in the last 35 years, uh, the world has put up satellites, and we measure the amount of solar radiation, the visible hitting the Earth, in the infrared hitting the Earth, in the microwaves, the ions, the solar stuff, everything. The last 35 years, we've been measuring everything. And there's an 11-year solar cycle, and it happens for visible light, it happens for infrared, it happens for microwave, it happens for ions. And there it is going, oscillating back and forth, baseline stable. Meanwhile, temperature going up like this. And so those are your sunspots. We measure it. Because he said, what about sunspots? I believe in the poor farmer's almanac as, as an indicator of what the weather will be 5 and 10 and 20 years from now. And, and so I showed him this, and he looked and he said, hmm. I gotta think about it. Good. Well, anyway, here's the data. Here's where you can look it up. Okay. So the least I could have done is saying, the virulent no, it's not happening. You mute. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I met a whole bunch of individuals like that. I've also met people on the other side, um, a, a good, well-meaning Midwestern senator, who I said, you know, this, you know, if you're west of Mississippi. The water problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. And it's very clear, and it's, you know, it's really easy. We have mountains. The mountains store the snow. If it rains in the spring instead of snows, it brings out the snow out of the mountains prematurely. And by late summer, early, late spring, early summer, there's no more snow in the mountains. You've had floods in the spring. And, and then you've had hot summers, and it gets really arid, and then you need to irrigate. Guess what? There's no more water. So this is an easy concept, okay? And, uh, and it's gonna get worse and worse in 50, 20, 60 years, it's gonna be really bad. Uh, how, exactly how bad it's gonna be? And I said, Steve, I know, but my voters don't care. They wanna know whether it's gonna rain next week. Yeah. Okay, so you're the voters. And one of the other things, we're not talking about, there's another thing I want to emphasize. It's not about you've got to do this because of climate change. In the United States, and I emphasize this, re clean renewable energy, wind, and then solar is becoming the low-cost solution, meaning it's cheaper energy to forget about carbon. It, w in new sources of energy, natural gas is the cheapest in the United States. We have unbelievable prices of natural gas. It's uh, $4 a million BTU. I think it's at least double that, maybe triple that in Australia. Uh, because Australia is tied more to the international price. I know in Europe it's four times as much. Yet new natural gas in the United States is comparable to wind in the United States in reasonable sites, not the best sites. 
even though the natural gas is so inexpensive. And in, within five years, 10 years at the outset, solar will be, solar retail is already comparable in, in the southern part of the United States, and it's gonna be cheaper. Except many politicians don't know it's becoming cheaper. In southern part of the United States, in southern California, Arizona, they, they're discovering it's already cheaper, and they're starting to install it on their roofs, and then other companies move in and say, we'll install it for you, you don't have to pay a penny. Uh, we'll own it, we'll maintain it, if it breaks, that's okay, you buy electricity from us, you let us use your roof. There's one, cat, you know, you have to sign to buy electricity for 10, 15, 20 years, but there's ways out if you move, that's okay, we can figure that one out. Uh, and there's one other caveat, yeah, we'll charge you half, three quarters of what you're gonna pay the electrical company. Okay, what's not to like about that? So the majority of solar in the United States and in California and these other places is now via that, right? Just, it's cheaper. Utility companies are petrified. Okay, and so you have that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so, so one is discovering it's becoming the low cost solution no matter what, even if you don't even price the carbon. You need a price on it for other reasons. You, you know, I've often said that economics in a way ends up driving it in the long run. It's a, I mean, a, and I, I remember learning from Noam Chomsky a long time ago that he thought the Vietnam War stopped not because people thought it was bad, but because it was, you know, not, there were a lot of economic issues. And, and, and so do you think it's going to be economics that's gonna, that, that ultimately will drive this change if there is going to be a change? It, it, it will be economics in places where renewables are very good. Australia has uh, unbelievably good sun in central Australia, and you're a big company. And I've been learning that you have unbelievably good wind resources, and Western Australia is, I think, 40% wind without suffering blackouts, and it's becoming a low-cost solution. Hawaii, 39 cents a kilowatt hour, they burn diesel fuel to generate electricity is three times cheaper. The Hawaiian, uh, he called the Hawaiian Electric Company, is just saying, we can't sustain anymore because once you go more than 5% solar, the grid goes unstable. I s said, no, that's not true. I said it in a less diplomatic way. Uh, <laughs> initials B and S were part of it. <laughs> but um, I was no longer Secretary of Energy. And, and how was, why was I so confident? Because Spain has um, virtually no tie line to the rest of the European continent. They're 25% wind and solar. Average over the entire year. I'm not talking about nameplates. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about that's what they actually generated and used. Ireland's over 20%. There are a half a dozen countries in Europe that are over 20, 25% intermittent renewable. I'm, I'm taking hydro aside. And they're managing it, and, it, and in a country like Australia, which is, gee, terrific, son, it's, it will become within, if not now, the low-cost solution. There will be embedded industries who don't want that to happen. And so, you can see why. So I want to step back one, one bit, um, one step back and say, okay, so uh, we see some failures of how government works with science. So let's think, what is the ideal way for government to get scientific advice, okay? So you can have a Nobel laureate on your, uh, in your cabinet, just ask them. Of course, some of our Nobel laureates you probably wouldn't want to be asking advice from. <laughs> so science is full of a range of opinion and views. We need to have consensus. 
Sometimes there's consensus, sometimes it's a little messy. We don't need to have consensus if there isn't consensus. I think that's the point. I mean, you want honest views and you want to hear... But and the who's going to make the decision of what to do? How does the well, government the, just want an answer? Well, I think the, if we believe in democracy and it's got some virtues, um, <laughs> then, then ultimately, I mean, it's, you know, it's problematic, especially in this era of where you can buy media and that, that really affect opinion. A lot more money is spent buying media on climate change than investing in research on climate change. But I think the point is, ultimately, the responsibility is to educate the public. It's one of the reasons... I think we do what we do, all, of, all three of us, in our different ways. But, and the public has to make that decision. And, the, and legislators, legislators need to be informed. And if you don't have an informed public and informed legislators, you're going to have a crappy democracy. But sometimes but the science is not so straightforward. Sorry, Lisa. Right, and I was going to address that issue. I mean, I think one of the things about these complex issues is we have to be more comfortable with the fact that there isn't always a yes or no answer. We are, we are fairly comfortable in, in other realms. I mean, we funded a war to find what weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. So clearly it was a probabilistic thing in some ways. So I think we should be comfortable with probabilistic things. I mean, if there's a significant risk of climate change, even if it's not 100%, although we're pretty confident there's a pretty bad thing, that should be enough because the con I mean, there has to be some calculation done of what the consequences would be and how much how bad consequences we're willing to do. And there's just many, and this is a very rambling way, I'm sorry I'm jet-lagged, to say though that I think we have to become a little bit more comfortable with probabilities, with uncertainty, with the fact that we can't always just say yes or no, because that actually happens to be true about every issue the government has to decide on, not just scientific issues. But people have this false idea that science is 100%, we know what's going to happen. And the whole beauty of science is that we can say not just what we think is going to happen, but how confident we are in that. And that's the difference in science. Everyone else is just saying what they know is going to happen, but they have no idea what their confidence level is. A lot of the things people say are wrong. But in science, we can say it with some idea of how much we trust that answer. And, and we have to be comfortable with giving advice that way. And then we can have disagreement, because that's why there's a little bit of margin of error. But that doesn't mean that there's not a consensus at some you, level. You know, we have to praise uncertainty. You hit the key point because it's used in the United States a lot. Oh, there's uncertainty about climate change, but uncertainty is the greatest thing about science, as Lisa just put it. I mean, science is the only realm of human activity where you can actually you can quantify say, quantify your uncertainty. Yeah. So we should, we should be praising uncertainty, we don't. We should really praise the fact that all results are uncertain, and that's what's wonderful. So, so Steve, cold harder, you've, you've seen the, the uh, Ed Up Close and Personal. How does this work for real? I mean. How do we need I, to interact? I, 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 think, I think many government officials uh, can understand this. This is not rocket science. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really serious. Um, <laughs> uh, let me do it by analogy. And I, I think when I talk to them, I don't know how many people in this room smoke. Can you raise the hands or... Uh, uh, You're all afraid to. <laughs> how many don't smoke? <laughs> Okay, thank you. <laughs> As you've seen, we have you a typical cross-section. So, so I did the experiment. Now I know a large fraction don't smoke. Let me, let me, let me just what say, smoke? Uh, suppose a scientist, suppose, suppose someone goes up to uh, your kid and your child, and they're, you know, they say, um, you know, science can't predict whether you'll get lung cancer if you smoke, which is true. 
uh, there's some uncertainty. There are people who live to 90 years old, they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, and they don't get lung cancer. Uh, science can't, they don't know the detailed biology of how smoking causes lung cancer, so it just might be a false correlation. Uh, so, hey, and it's really cool, uh, <laughs> and so on, so on. And, and so, um, uh, you would think that, you would say, no, there's a risk you would get lung cancer to smoke. The risk happens to be 25 times greater not 25%, 25 times greater, but it's risk, but you still can't predict. Now, in the risks of climate change, there are huge uncertainties. Uh, it could be kind of bad, like weirder weather. It could be very bad or it could be catastrophic. That's where the uncertainty lies. It, there isn't, oh, not to worry, uh, because it ain't gonna happen. It's not gonna have any, okay. Uh, the vast majority, the 99% majority is, is bad, medium bad, manageable, really bad, catastrophic, okay? It ain't, it ain't uh, of what we've done already, okay? So th there is a huge uncertainty, and that's where the uncertainty lies. Among 99% of the scientists who've paid attention to the literature, the research, everything else. Um, and so I think when people say, you can't prove 100% or 90% or 95% that's true, so we're not gonna do anything, therefore you don't have fire insurance, therefore you don't have health insurance. Okay, this is easy to explain. But you know, it's, but it's easy to explain, but people know that it, um, it's, in fact in Australia, it's really explicit on smoke, on packages of cigarettes, um, that, that people know that it's 20, you know, 25 times more likely they're gonna get lung cancer, but people still smoke. And, and the problem is that people, we, we are all hardwired to not, I mean, there are risks that are down the line, and there are immediate things. It was like your, your senator, it's gonna rain, my people care about whether it's gonna rain next week. It's really hard, I think, to get people to internalize this question of, well, it's down the road, it's down the road. I, I wanna smoke now, and it's down the road, okay. and I'll worry about it then. But there's a huge difference, because if you smoke as individuals, if you smoke, you incur the risk. There's a minor secondary, there is a secondary smoke issue, yeah. but you mostly incur the risk. Yeah. You, if you smoke and your grandchildren run that 25 times higher risk, you would probably try to stop. And yet as a society, we don't care about what happens to the grandchildren and the children. Yeah. And so the secondary smoke in, in, in fossil fuel emissions is totally different, okay? We don't run the risk. Everyone on the stage, by the time we're dead, most of what's gonna happen is just simply not gonna be seen. And and it's our panel, I guess. <laughs> and it, it's the children, and the grandchildren, who really bear the brunt of it, and say, "Nope, not a problem. That's the grandkids' problem." Okay, and so it's different. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, we—that's well. We I think it's a long history. It's hard to get if the job of government is to be reelected. It's hard to talk to solve problems that are. That's a real problem of government. It's hard to solve problems that are. 40 years down the road because you know you're not going to be a government, whether it's the, economic, the economy and deficits or, 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 or the climate. That's why it's so important if it's becoming the low-cost solution in yeah. many countries of the yeah. world. That's why it's really important. And it's worse than that. If it's not the low-cost solution and you're a country that has oil and gas in the ground, guess what? Yeah. You will use it or and coal sell it. Or if you're it. Australia. Or uh, if you you're will OPEC, use it you lower it. the prices. 
uh, while they're trying to lower the prices to see if other suppliers of oil, at what point they have to stop producing. This is a little experiment they're doing. Yeah. So <laughs> let's move on to some of the more grayer areas. One of the things that we have is we have a scientific position on many issues, but often the scientific position gets uh, intertwined with what I would describe as ethical issues. So for example, genetically modified foods, uh, most of the evidence, or all the evidence, is that they don't seem to cause anything direct bad, but there is a question, I think, about modification of things that's an ethical consideration. And I always say, let's just look at modifying a human. If I were to say, we're going to modify your child so that they become superhuman in some way, they become a super athlete, most people would say, that's not on. But if I were going to modify I think a lot of people would say, that's great. Yeah, I think a lot of people would do it. No, well, I mean, so <laughs> eugenics? I mean, and they'd also be afraid of other people doing it, so they'd feel like they had to do it for their Yeah. Kids. So it, it's an interesting question. I, I, I would say the average person is not comfortable with modifying the human genome to make us superhuman. Uh, uh, that's my, my gut feeling. We can pull the audience mm. in a second. I think that's true But today. I would say most people would be comfortable of switching off the cystic fibrosis gene so you didn't die uh, you know, uh, uh, death young uh, from that problem. So there's a very funny set of, of ethics. So since there seems to be some ambiguity up here, who here thinks it's okay for you, and we could probably make this happen right now, that if you decided to have children, <laughs> that you could make them superhuman through various modifications? Who's comfortable in the audience doing that? <laughs> okay, so it's can about 25%. Can, can I add, suppose you could do that and you were 95% certain there would be no ill effects, unintended consequences. I.e., 5% chance there's a bad consequence. There could be a 5% <laughs> chance there might be some unforeseen thing. Uh, just as if you send your kid and you want them to be professional athletes, whether they're tennis players or rugby players, there's a chance that they could be injured. Okay? Make them smarter. Uh, I think most of the people in this audience, that's what they would wish for first, not to make them Olympic athletes or... or you obviously right. haven't been in Australia. Uh, no, I... <laughs> No, but wait, I mean, You're right. I, I mean, that's what people do all the time. I, it, it, it's true that, I mean, you picked a, maybe a sensitive example, but I, people get, get hung up on things and don't realize that's what we've been genetically modif modifying food since humans have been making food. We've been genetically modifying in some way through selection effects humans. And, and, and uh, you know, we can do it more efficiently maybe by working on genomes, but we've been genetically modifying humans and that's why, so, you know, so we live longer and... Normally, the ethical considerations are mixed with what I would describe some scientific inaccuracies, just to spice it up a little bit. And so, genetically modified foods is a good example where they're often perceived to be very risky that mm -hmm. we're somehow going to. I'm going to take a slightly different line on gen okay. genetically modified food because I think most scientists say the kind of things you're saying. I mean, one problem that I have is that it's not entirely regulated and that you can't test for everything. And so we present it as if it's safe because all the tests have been done. But what if it turns out that there's another test? Or it could be some subtle effect. Or it could be, I mean, asking Monsanto to self-regulate 
is not a great idea based on past experience. But, but, we but that is what we did with Jim Mayer. And, and there are the hybridization, which has even more uncontrolled bits of things That's going right. On. I'm not saying that, yeah. that gives an answer, but I think it's just very easy to present everyone who's against it as just being anti-science. And I think sometimes they really are more worried about what it's doing to the economic, that they're going to no longer be able to grow their crops, that, um, that they'll have to keep buying the same seeds. So I think there's a lot of other considerations. And we present it as anti-science to try to shut them up. But I mean, and there are some people that are like that, but I think there are real economic issues at stake here. And there are, at last, we don't have a consensus. This is good. Yeah. And so because <laughs> we'll have a discussion. But yeah. I was going to say that, you know, I mean, and there, there's another issue, and uh, which, is, which is a great concern, is that biological systems are very complex, and, and as, as is our ecosystem. And it's sometimes very hard, and Australians are particularly, with cane toads and rabbits and other things, are particularly aware that, that it looks like a a simple solution to a, uh, a biological problem, um, in fact, is not the solution at all. It's, in fact, make, oh, creates a worse problem. Yeah. Uh, and so I will agree that um, Monsanto wasn't really acting uh, sometimes in good faith uh, on genetically modified crops. But on the other hand, I, I would say there's, there's, a, there's about to be a genetically modified rice which have B vitamins, uh, and you, you look at, at the the good side and the bad side. And then there's risk on the bad side. And you look at the good side, and the good side is, you know, there's vitamin deficiencies, all sorts of other things. Uh, you want the local farmers not to be beholden to some high-tech company in the United States or Australia and everything else. Completely agree. Uh, it's hard to do that because even with hybridization, Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is you hybridize, you put the seed out, the farmers keep the seed, they plant the next year, and they plant the next year, and nature makes it go back. Mm -hmm. And now through hybridization in the United States, the corn production per acre grew eightfold. Corn per acre. Yeah. And so did diabetes. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> wheat, <laughs> wheat, corn, rice. Oh, so any of those other things, it's true. Diabetes is an issue. But that is kind of the point. That we have to have this a more subtle argument. Right. We do look at one. It's just not necessarily great to have overproduction of corn. That hasn't necessarily been great for the country. But it, I, it's good in some ways. It's not good in other ways. And so I think we just have to have a more nuanced discussion. And I think part of our responsibility as scientists is to, is to not just make everything black and white, to admit that there's right. a subtle argument and that maybe this rice is good, but something else isn't good. And so I think that there's room for that. It doesn't mean we have to have no genetically modified food or all genetically modified food. There's plenty of room for a discussion. And I think that we have to open <coughs> ourselves to that. Right. Well, you do especially. I think what we need to do is, is yeah. do what, what's happening in this panel, in a sense. I mean, we don't, shouldn't be saying, in a, some sense, what is good for society or what's bad for society, we should be saying these are the likely risks, these are likely benefits, these are the realistic things we can do, these are the realistic things we can't do, and, and get that discussion going in a form way. It's, I know it's, it's naive to say that, but that's, it seems to me, what, what, what the role of scientists should be, is to provide a reliable estimate of risks and opportunities, and then in a, in a democratic and society, then people can make it. a decision. Furthermore, you don't massively introduce this. You do it and pilot it, and you watch and see yeah. it and do, okay? You don't massively say by uh, government, no, government fiat's not going to do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and and, and so, so there are other things in order to learn more about the risks. Right. 
okay? And so I think uh, they're... Although if they're long-term risks, that's going to yes, take a long time. Yes, that's right. And, and in many things, DDT. Uh, we did not know DDT was in many ways regarded as a godsend that really helped control malaria. And then all of a sudden, 5, 10, 20 years later, we find that it was doing a lot of things that in, it made it banned around the world. And so, so we do discover things 5, 10 years, 20 years down the road. And, and we know this. And, and I think most scientists are not cocky enough to say, oh, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. I think most scientists live in worlds of uncertainty. But I think with genetically modified food, a lot of people do say that, actually, because they see the opposition as so naive, which they often are. But and scientists so I think are, are I agree. Yeah, so I think they are. So I think that makes it so that we never really have the real discussion. But I, I think, think scientists are partly to blame because we, you know, we get government funding and we've been able to solve problems. And I think we give, and you just watch movies, and you get this wrong impression that science is going to always come up with a, with a, a, a clear solution and that and there can't be, and, and you know, this is the way it's going to be. And we have to point out that this is the way it's likely going to be, but there may be problems that we can't anticipate. Society has to decide if those risks are worth it. But politicians often present, I think, and are taught to present that this, this scientific solution is the way out, and this one isn't. And, 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 and there are always, always going to be unintended consequences. There are unintended consequences of both your prizes, good ones. But, uh, but, uh, uh, and there may be bad ones. That's, that's what makes science, I think, that's what <laughs> makes science so interesting, is that, is that we don't know what's going to happen down the road. And I think we have to be willing to point out that we don't know a lot of the time. Now, we have a lot of questions that the audience wants to ask. But before we launch into those questions, uh, I want to ask each of you a forward-looking question. We'll start with you, Lawrence. What do you see as being the big place during the rest of your life, which I will assume will be long, uh, where science is going to make a difference in the world? Well, there, you see now, that it's a good segue from what I just said. I, do, I don't predict the future unless it's two trillion years from now. It's a lot easier. <laughs> a lot of reasons for that. One, it's simpler, and B, no one's going to know anyway. But to me, the great, uh, it, look, I can anticipate things, but the greatest things are the things I can anticipate. Yep. So, of course, science, I think, in, in the areas of energy production, is going to have a vast, uh, it, you know, biotechnology and energy production are going to change the way we think about being human and ultimately the way society functions or dysfunctions. But I, uh, uh, what makes it all exciting to me is I don't have the slightest idea. People to ask me, what's the next big breakthrough? And I say, if I knew, I'd be doing it. And, uh, and so to me, the, the greatest, most exciting stuff is the stuff I can't foresee, and therefore I won't try. I'm going to have the same answer, so I'd like to hear the questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's got to be something in coming up that you think is going to be exciting where Look, science is going to contribute. There are things I'm excited about, but I can't say the things that are going to change the world because we don't know what those are. I think that will change the way we think about the world. I think we might learn what dark matter is. We might learn more about elementary parts. We might learn more about gravity or extra dimensions of space. But those won't change what you're having for breakfast tomorrow, but those will change the way we view the world. In terms of things that are practical, the only things we know that will change are things that are technologically driven because we have the technology already. And th but that's, that's obvious. But, then, but we don't know what the big scientific advances are yet because they haven't happened. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Steve. Well, I'm going to, 
again, quote Yogi Berra, who's the great American philosopher of the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> and he, about this, he said, predictions, or as a scribe to say, predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. Um, so, having with that caveat, uh, I would both agree uh, with many things. Um, uh, the boldest and best predictions were will be completely unanticipated. I look back, and when I was growing up as a kid in the 50s and 60s, we thought there would be individualized airplanes, spaceships taking us here and there. Uh, we thought, you know, nuclear power would be so cheap to meter. We thought lots of stuff. And uh, those things didn't happen. No one imagined an internet mm -hmm. in the 50s or 60s. It just wasn't unimaginable that you could be accused of being technologically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm being a little technologically challenged right now. And so, so uh, you just have to remember, um, you know, Wright Brothers, December 2004, first flight. 1969, men on the moon. That's not too long. That's one lifetime. Yeah. Okay. So. 2014, we landed on the comet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was a little bit rocky landing. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Still three, three times. And, and, and Still when we were amazing. kids, we thought comets, <laughs> comets were just. Back yeah. to gas balls. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, Remember? Yeah. Didn't get land on one, not, exactly. Not too long ago. Yeah, right. absolutely. Okay? It's, that's the great thing. 20 or 30 wrong. years ago, we grew up thinking there were gas balls. In fact, being wrong is the, and I, as I'm an expert on this. <laughs> um, no, but I think being wrong is one of the neatest parts of being a scientist. And, and being, you know, is because it means you're being surprised. <laughs> no, it means you're being surprised. And, and I think, you know, we're predicting things in the Large Hadron Collider, and both Lisa and I might, you know, think that there is a likely route there. But half the time, I kind of hope that the whole thing is wrong because it'd be more exciting. No, but I have to, you know, as an experimental scientist, I have to, I have to call them on this. <laughs> call him. I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah okay. no, Lisa. Right. <laughs> call him. So, so one of the greatest triumphs, in, in a certain sense, with the discovery of the Higgs, one of the greatest disappointments is it appears to be an ordinary Higgs. Yeah. And one of the hugest fears is that the next... 10 years won't discover anything that we exactly. haven't figured out in the 70s. This yeah. is a huge fear, okay? Yeah. We need the surprise because if, if there's nothing new, yeah. then there will be no next collider. If there's nothing new, then you've just completely deflated. Oh, we can't test anything by experiment anymore? Well, but the biggest, the problem is the biggest argument for another collider is that we didn't discover it yet because it yeah, doesn't I mean, mean it doesn't exist. It just means we didn't have the energy for it. Uh, it, it would, it's hard to sell it saying, you know what, we didn't see anything. Give us something new. And, 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 and not to give to us something new, this time it's going to be 50 billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no, it's <laughs> that leads to one of the questions from the audience, which is, what are we under-investing in right now? How can we essentially, what are the next big science questions that we should be investing in right now? I'm, I'm going to throw one you. out, that, that, that because I, I ran a meeting about this, and I wasn't aware of this. I mean, we spend so much money in oil and gas exploration. Now, it's not clear to me that it's possible, but what's clear is that climate change is inevitable at this point, and at, at some level, and, we, and the carbon that's in the atmosphere right now will last for about 1,000 years, 600 to 1,000 years. So, but very little money is spent on, on whether we can remove carbon from the atmosphere directly. I, it's, it seems highly impractical to me 
in most of my thinking about it, but, but less than 10 or 20 million dollars that I know of has been invested in that area, which might be, which ultimately is, is, could be vitally important for the whole world. So that's one thing that I, Steve? So let me chime in and say I agree absolutely, but there are actually known technologies to do this. Uh, you can tend grasslands better. You can do reforestation, uh, and that will begin to help a little bit. You can do all sorts of other things long before you do uh, genetic modification of forests mm -hmm. and and other things. You long before you have to touch the oceans because there are unintended consequences that I would be very very worried about. Yeah, me too. Uh, but reforestation, I think that's okay. Uh, that's that's yeah. you know. Uh, Low tillage agriculture mm -hmm. uh, can have a tremendous impact on on keeping carbon in the soil. Yeah. There's many, many things that you can do, but in the end, I think we're also going to have to do research on how do you grab it out of the atmosphere and mineralize it. At least research. It may not right. be practical. Research. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Lisa, is it uh, we need to be spending more money on a super collider or? Um, I actually do. <laughs> 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 um, I, I actually believe what I just said, which is if we don't find something now, it's the biggest argument that, because we do really think there should be something around this energy. And from a theorist, you know, around this energy is around this energy. But from an experimenter, if you can see something at twice the energy and you go only to the energy we have now, you don't see anything. So, you know, we already know that whatever we see, even if we do see something, is just going to be the tail end. But I'll, So I will selfishly say that I think we should invest in that. Um, it's relatively minor compared to other things that have been mentioned, although it is very expensive, but it really is the only way to find out the answers. The other thing I actually do think will be interesting eventually is if we really do get serious about gravity wave detection, because I think it's just something that's so different. Everything we've seen so far we see with light in some form or another. I think we just have no idea what's out there that we might just see once we really get good gravity it's the detection future. It's the, it's the future, and not just, yep. I must say, because the the... the next wave that's been proposed of the new detector is called LISA. <laughs> they changed the name, which yeah, I'm so happy about. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it oh, is well. the future, and it's going to be the next, next one. So another person asked, what pushes developments more, unverified theory or experimental results that contradict theory? Steve. <laughs> um, I don't know, actually. I think uh, experimenters go off and do what they want to do. Occasionally, they uh, at least pretend to listen to theorists, uh, <laughs> which they shouldn't. Which they shouldn't uh, do. Actually. Uh, but um, uh, most discoveries were discoveries that were not searching to prove or disprove a theory. Most mm -hmm. discoveries were made in the following way: you invent a new tool, a telescope, a microscope. Okay, a way of accelerating electrons or protons. Yeah. Um, uh, electron microscope. You invent a new tool, other people then, and then all, such, all this stuff comes out by accidental discovery. And uh, I think it's true that the thing we leave out is we do what we can do. You know, we have yeah. all these nice yeah. goals, but if, in the if end, we're theorists, if it's you the have same an thing. idea, you work out the idea. If you have a tool, you use the tool. That's how you make advances. But, too. but I think that, you know, as a th theorist, I mean, we, theory sounds sexy because you can make it unintelligible. And, uh, um, but science is an empirical discipline. And it, I mean, there are rare periods where theory drives experiment. But I think 
on the whole, we, and I'm we need to celebrate the fact that, that, that it's experiments that drive science, because they tell us how nature really works. Oh, by the way, you just heard a theory, and you can go out after this and test it. If you become more unintelligible, you will become sexier. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we and I try. <laughs> so, um, one of our students uh, asks, Sex. in light of what happened since the Kyoto Protocol, how seriously do governments really take international agreements, and is your view Will any new agreement in Paris in December next year really be able to stop climate change? Let me, let me start with that. I think, I think this is definitely your area. Yes, many, yeah. I think, yeah, it is. But many, many, many governments do take it very seriously. Uh, a, a number of governments signed and ratified the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, the majority of governments fell short of their goal. Uh, does that mean they were insincere? No. Uh, they, they tried, they fell short of the gold. Uh, it, it has to do a lot with existing technology, other things. Um, I would say that you will push towards international agreements, but the, when the rubber hits the road, it's what actually happens in countries around the world. Uh, whether it allows you to uh, develop your economy uh, and, and progress to better standards of living, and, and yet be environmentally responsible. Uh, China and the United States just had an agreement, bilateral agreement. They weren't saying, hey, where's the international agreement? China said, we're gonna do this, the United States, we're gonna do that. And it was ahead of any protocol, uh, and it was ahead of anything. And in the end, that's what it's gonna make the difference. You know, China and the United States are the two biggest carbon emitters in the world. This is a serious problem, we gotta do something about it. And, and don't pin your hopes on the international agreement, uh, because in the end, it's what actually happens. Yep. And then I will go back to science and technology with policy guiding investments in research, not investments in deployment, investments in research to make it the low-cost solution. And there's where it's cheap. It's not billions and billions, it's millions. And so it's cheap, uh, and 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 that's a proper role for taxpayers to pay for basic research. So one of our uh, people out here asked, "Is any research too curiosity driven?" And I'm going to rephrase the question, mm -hmm. which is, uh, "How much money should we be spending on curiosity driven research?" I mean, we I think we all think it's important. But well, you're not going to spend 100% of the GDP. I can't of the country imagine any research that isn't. If there's very little research that isn't curiosity-driven, as I said, scientists, most scientists are not out to save the world. They're they're driven by what interests them. Otherwise, they couldn't spend the time and effort that if you're not fascinated by it, you can't so let's, spend the time. So let's not use the word curiosity. Let's say with no strategic goal in mind, specific strategic goal in mind. Well, you know, there, there's a long... There, so maybe you it, should rephrase it to be what fraction of the science budget yes. should be, be applied versus... That, because there's first a question of what absolute value we want to put into science, which we can debate for a long time. And we probably would say 100% for that one. I, no, but what <laughs> fraction of the budget of the taxpayers should be in science research, and then yeah. what fraction purely curiosity That's what I was saying. That's what I was saying. Yeah, there's two... That's what yeah, I was saying. That's yeah. two questions. And it's hard to... It's, I don't know whether we're in a position to... Again, I don't think we should be 
necessarily answering that question. I think, again, an informed public should be, but, but, but we, they should understand. And, and there was a big study in the United States called uh, Rising Against the, against the what Rising Above the, the Gathering Storm. The Gathering Storm, which is a very important study that pointed out that fundamental curiosity-driven research is responsible a generation down the road for the standard of living. I mean, at least 50% of the GNP. But so the other thing is, I think we should start acknowledging the dirty secret that people that say they're doing applied research are, are not really. They're yeah. doing, they're finding excuses to justify. And so I think once that is acknowledged, it maybe could be the scientific community be a little freer to actually define their real goals. Well, but I, I would say that's imposed upon them by research funders yeah. that... No, what I'm saying is right. that once that's acknowledged, if yeah. it can be acknowledged, it would be a very nice thing because then we can actually figure out the percentage according to the right. real goals of scientists. But, you know, I was at a meeting in, in, uh, of the World Economic Forum and, and someone pointed out something very interesting, which was that, so we talk about how much science costs, but um, the, the, if you ask how much is spent on um, popcorn or how much is spent on gum, or how much, I mean, you could, you could list a whole bunch of things, or dog food. Um, the, the amount that we, we spend on those areas are, is, is vastly, in many cases, exceeds the, well, the budget Alfredo on Scobay's research. Louise description of the cost of the Large Hadron Collider was yeah. a beer per European per day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How much? <laughs> something like a beer per European per day or something like well, that. Well, I was trying to get an energy budget that was a very small fraction of the amount of money Americans spend on potato chips. Potato chips, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's several trillions of dollars on potato chips. So, I mean, you got to, and, and I, I use that example about Iraq as a very clear example. I think that, you know, if, 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 if we, government is honest. But we, we agree it's a question that should be asked and considered. Yeah. And there's, sure, sure. there's some, and I, I think most of us would agree that that question, at least in this country, is not asked in that, that way. Well, because yeah. it's only asked as an excuse to cut the budget. It's yeah. never asked in, in the terms of, should we be adding more money to yeah. the budget? And going back to what Lawrence said about rising above the Gathering Storm, it was a committee of 20 people. I was on that. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it was clear to us that the research did have great benefits, the computer, the internet, the, everything else, the, uh, the, large, the laser, the transistor, all that stuff came out of research. Was, all that stuff came out of very basic research. A generation before that, uh, and uh, it was a reason for great wealth in the United States. China, Korea, Japan, other countries have learned from this playbook. They're saying this is the way the United States got beyond just extractive resources, uh, right? Yep. Oil, gas, stuff like minerals. Uh, this is what they did. They created great wealth. We want to do the same. And so China, over the last decade and a half, has been doing this. Um, and Australia, I mean, I've said it on TV too, and Brian's aware of this, that Australia just is, doesn't. It's, it's really low compared to, you know, it's, it, it seems to me that you, you use the, you know, the easy stuff, the selling of coal or, or you know, iron, whatever it is, that it, it, instead of investing in research, and down the road, I think it's gonna be a problem for Australia. And, and if you consider, look at Singapore, look at Israel. There are no natural resources in, in, in these places. None. Yeah. None. They have to live by their wits. Mm -hmm. Okay? And guess what? They're living by their wits. And guess what? Uh, yeah. Singapore is a very yes. high standard of living. And so there's something to be said about Didn't looking Singapore at successes. Singapore have a scientist running their government? 
What? Didn't Singapore have a scientist running? The Singapore has even more than that. that you, if you do well in national exam, you're sent abroad. You're, you're, and, and, and this happened in emperors in China as well. You do well in national, you're sent abroad, you come back with a PhD, you have a job in government. Now, Singapore has another thing. They actually pay their government officials more than a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. You were jealous of that. Well, stop corruption. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they're also a dictatorship, so that I yes, mean, that, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I I I'd rather, um, but but I would say that they um, they would take some of the best and brightest people, and they would bring them back, and they say, help us run the government, and help us make a long-term plan of what's going on. And so, yes, they have other things that uh, I would not want to be. Well, that's I, why they can do long-term planning. I mean, you know, it's, it's benefits and disadvantages. They can do it because they have tight control. They can say, in seven years, we're going to do this. And, and it's, you can't do, it's hard to do that in democracy when you may not be in government in seven years. Oh, yeah, but we, the United States did that. Uh, after World War II, uh, in part because they were so impressed by physicists, as they should have been, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because of the, what they did on weapons radar and the yeah. bomb, that they said, radar oh my gosh. Radar isn't a weapon. Pardon? Radar is not a weapon. Well, radar isn't a weapon. Radar can be used as a weapon. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a plane shoot it down. Yeah. Anyway. That's a weapon. It's and essential so, part of a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but. You say computer's a weapon by that. But, but let's, let's go back to this. So the United States in, in the, late 40s, 50s, 60s, and then when um, uh, Sputnik came along, scared by Jesus in the United yeah. States. All of a sudden, the Russians were ahead of us. They had this thing, Goldman, and it's orbiting the United States, and the president of the United States, who was one of two five-star generals in the history of the United States, Eisenhower, he, he could have said, we're gonna invest in rockets and military and everything. He didn't. This was 1957. He made a major speech, and he said, my science advisors tell me that he said, I couldn't do this, but my science advisors tell me that the long-term solution is to train more scientists and engineers. And it started in high school and college and grade school, and the reaction to Sputnik was, hey, Russian engineers and scientists are catching up with this. And so I was educated on the yeah, Sputnik money. Yeah. yeah. You, okay. And, uh, uh, my maybe parents. you're too yes. My parents. He's too young. <laughs> He's just a baby. <laughs> but, but what an amazing thing. And so in the 50s and 60s and even the 70s, the United States was doing that. We were a democracy. Mm -hmm. So I would say no. I'd say you can have for decades leadership on both sides of you the can. aisle and yeah. say we, we kind of lost our way, but, but, but it is possible. Yeah. All right, guys. So uh, our evening is coming to an end. We're going to finish off with well, the last question I have here, and I want a short, succinct answer uh, <laughs> so they don't turn the lights That's out impossible. on us. <laughs> Steve, what's the pressing answer you want science? Well, what's the pressing question you want science to answer right now? What's the question you want to know the answer to? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 42. I, no, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm not going to... See, one of the things you learn in politics is someone can answer your question, but you don't have to answer it. There are so, too many good questions. Sorry. Yeah. Too many good questions. There's nothing that stands out. Lisa, what stands out to you? 
it's true, there's a lot of stuff. Nature of space. Nature of space? Mm. Lawrence? I'll actually try and give an answer, although I like, I like Caesar. Uh, is, uh, is our universe unique? Oh, okay, good. But we're never going to answer that. Well, I think we can. Oh, come on. <laughs> no. She was I, saying I think we can. <laughs> All right, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> thank you very much. Lawrence Krauss, Lisa Randall, and Stephen Chu. Thank you all for coming out tonight. It's been great here having a conversation about why science matters. <laughs> good night, good luck, and we look forward to seeing you in future events. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for showing your appreciation. Uh, my name is Ken Baldwin. I'm director of the Energy Change Institute here at ANU, and it's uh, my role this evening to uh, move a formal vote of thanks. Uh, and uh, particularly as Steve's host this uh, week, uh, I can tell you that he'll be appearing at a couple of other events, including our annual energy update tomorrow at uh, 9 o'clock in the Coombs Lecture Theatre, and also, as our Vice-Chancellor has mentioned, at the National Press Club lunch on Wednesday. So if you want to hear more from Steve, then come along to those events. Uh, there are a few people I need to thank uh, who helped put this uh, event together as well. Uh, there's the staff of the ANU Energy Change Institute and also the Australian Institute of Physics, uh, the ANU media team who helped promote the event, and of course the ANU School of Music uh, who, of course, uh, helped by providing us with the venue. So uh, it uh, only remains uh, for me to ask you to join with me uh, in providing a, a, an expression of your appreciation to this uh, wonderful panel who've given us great insights into the way that science works and how it's relevant and the big questions that we need to answer for the future. So please join with me in thanking Lawrence Krauss, Lisa Randall, Steve Chu and Brian Schmidt. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.